Chapter 17 Satan in the Temple A popular doctrine that many believe and teach today is that the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel, and, as a result, Israel will be able to rebuild their temple. Then, according to this teaching, the Antichrist will sit in that temple and claim to be God. This idea comes from a private interpretation of an Old Testament passage that is then linked to one of Paul's scriptures in the New Testament about the last days. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-5, Paul gives us some key details regarding what will happen in the very end. Here is a copy of that passage. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not, that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? The apostles and early Christians were not expecting the rapture. Paul begins here by saying that he is referring to the coming of the Lord and our gathering together unto him. We are gathered unto Christ at the rapture. Paul then makes a statement that is often ignored in end-time doctrine today. He told them to not believe anyone or any letter that said the day of the Lord was at hand. Throughout the Bible, the day of the Lord refers to when He returns in the end. Many Christians have heard other Christians, as well as unbelievers, declare that believers have always said that the Lord's coming is near and that He can return at any moment for His church. They claim that even the apostles in the Bible taught that Jesus would return very soon. If you hear anyone make that declaration, you might want to ask them if they have ever read the Bible or if they are just repeating what they have heard others say. The apostles definitely did not believe that the return of Christ was near at hand, nor that our gathering together unto him was near. In John 21, 18 and 19, Jesus told Peter that he would grow old and die. So as long as Peter was alive, none of the twelve apostles believed that Jesus would return at any moment. Near the end of Peter's life, he wrote, Knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. 2 Peter 1.14 The Greek word for tabernacle also means body. Peter then clarified in his epistle what the early disciples knew. Emphasis added, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Therefore, Peter was telling them openly that he would soon die, and that in the future there would come mockers of the promise of Christ's coming. Let us not be one of them. These are definitely not the words of a person who is expecting the rapture at any moment. One of the reasons that Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians was to correct the heresy that claimed that the coming of the Lord was near. 
Anyone who reads 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3, quoted above, can see what Paul taught the disciples. He distinctly said that the coming of the Lord was not near at that time. He also said that he wanted to be part of the resurrection, Philippians 3:11. To do so, one must first die, and in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he wrote that his death was near. Neither Peter nor Paul taught that the coming of Christ was near at hand. Obviously, they knew that Jesus himself and many prophets had foretold the destruction of the nation of Israel that existed in their days, and that in the last days the nation would be reborn. Presently, many Christians know that the Lord's coming is near at hand. We know this in our day because it is now a message that the Holy Spirit is speaking through many mature believers. Returning now to the above passage from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-5, let's consider what Paul tells us must happen before Christ returns. He declares that before the Lord's return, there will be a falling away. The Greek word here for falling away is apostasia, which is apostasy in English. Any dictionary of English will define apostasy in much the same way as the Strong's Greek Dictionary defines it a defection from truth. This means that a person or group of people were walking in the truth, but they left that path and entered into error. Therefore, before the coming of the Lord, Paul declares that God's own people who are walking in the right path will leave that path and fall into error. Linked to that apostasy is the revelation of the son of perdition. In our ministry, we emphasize that in order to have correct doctrine about the end, we must obey Peter's warning, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, 2 Peter 1.20. We need to limit ourselves to what the Bible actually says instead of what someone thinks it says. We should insist that every detail be interpreted by the Bible itself and not by someone who says to us, This verse means, Who is the son of perdition? The popular end-time doctrines of today usually say that the son of perdition is the Antichrist. But Jesus shows us who he is. The Lord's traitor was Judas, a name that comes from the Hebrew, and is the same name as Judah. Matthew 1-2 confirms this. As many Christians know, Judah in the Hebrew means praise. Genesis 29:35 Therefore the name of the Lord's traitor was praise throughout the Old Testament over and over God's people fell into the horrific error of praising false gods in other words they were praising Satan they were spiritual traitors to the Lord this is what Israel fell into during the days of Elijah when they began to worship Baal God gave to the Apostle John the revelation of the last days. The first thing that Jesus himself declares in that book is a vital key to understanding the end, and Jesus repeats this truth five times throughout the book. He said, I am the beginning and the ending, Revelation 1.8. He is not only in the beginning and in the ending, but he is the beginning and he is the ending, and he never changes. Hebrews 13.8 and Malachi 3.6. Because of this, history does in fact repeat itself, 
and everything that God begins, He ends in the same way. In our Bible Institute, we have an in-depth study of the beginnings and endings found in the Bible. For example, the first thing that Jesus did in His earthly ministry was to serve wine, and the last thing He did was serve wine when He gave His disciples the cup in the upper room and then went out and was betrayed and crucified. In light of this, and in addition to many other examples, there is another very important beginning and ending in Christ's ministry. He faced a battle with the issue of praise at the beginning of His ministry. Therefore, it is understandable that He would face a battle with the issue of praise again at the end of His ministry. In the beginning, Satan offered Him the kingdoms of the world if He would fall down and worship Him. Matthew 4, 8 and 9. Then, at the end of His ministry, Judas, praise, decided to betray Him for money, as some do today. The Bible tells us that Satan entered into Judas when he decided to betray Jesus. Luke 22, 3. That is, Satan entered him when he decided to leave the path of truth and enter into darkness. This was apostasy. It occurred when Satan took control of praise, Judas. Therefore, the only biblical interpretation of the son of perdition is given by Christ in John 17, 12 just moments before Judas arrived with soldiers to arrest Jesus. There, he calls Judas the son of perdition. So then, the son of perdition is the name that the Lord himself gave to praise when Satan took control of praise. Is there any chance that the people of God today could fail in the same way that God's people often failed throughout Israel's history? Can Christians fail in the way that Israel failed? Some Christians today believe that we are incapable of failing in the same ways that Israel failed. However, Paul taught otherwise. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1-12, New King James Version, he summarizes Israel's journey from Egypt to Canaan and lists many of Israel's failures, including idolatry. He ends this theme in the last two verses of this passage by saying, now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Many Christians today are convinced that we are better than Israel in the Old Testament, and that we are not prone to fall into the rebellion that they often manifested. The New Testament makes it clear that every person is prone to sin, and not just God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, the correct conclusion about Israel is just the opposite of what many believe. They were actually the most determined and committed people in all of history. Imagine being in a scorching desert for three days and three nights without water for themselves or for their children. They did not complain until they came to the waters of Marah in Exodus 15:23. When they saw those waters, they surely thought that they had succeeded and had won their battle against thirst in that desert, until they discovered that the waters were bitter and that they could not drink them. Only then did they complain. There are many similar examples of Israel's carnal determination during their journey when they were in the midst of many tests, tests that few of us would have passed without murmuring almost immediately. As I mentioned already, some years ago, I led a group of Christians on a tour to Israel 
and afterward we traveled to Egypt. The bus ride across the desert in which Israel lived for 40 years took eight hours. We were riding in a luxurious Pullman bus with air conditioning and cold drinks. About halfway to our destination, the air conditioner on the bus stopped working. So we were forced to open the windows and be cooled by the rush of air created by the 60 mile an hour speed of the bus. Of course, we also still had free cold soft drinks. The complaining and murmuring of the group of Christians was beyond belief. For example, one expression was, Can you believe that they expect us to stay cool by the air that comes through the window? What kind of bus company is this? They obviously do not maintain their buses. Imagine the scene. We would now spend four more hours sitting in a luxury seat and being cooled by an abundance of air and cold drinks. Israel spent 40 years in that wilderness and there were no fans, much less a 60-mile-an-hour air source. Yes, they did murmur, but it was not after 40 minutes without air conditioning. It was during 40 years that they sometimes murmured. No wonder the Lord showed us the following truth. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Romans 9, 15 and 16. Israel left Egypt being willing and they were surely convinced that they could reach the goal if they would just run hard enough after that goal. Otherwise, they would not have left Egypt in the first place. In the next chapter, Paul confirms how determined Israel was and still is. He tells us, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. Romans 10, 2. We can conclude, based upon facts, that Israel revealed the best that human efforts and the flesh could produce, but it proved to be wholly unacceptable. Our own efforts will never get us to the goal that God has for us. Rather, the only way for success is to hope in and receive His mercy. The psalmist gives us a glorious summary of these truths. He, God, delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Psalms 147, 10 and 11. What about a rebuilt Jewish temple? Let's consider the rest of Paul's explanation regarding the last days found in the above passage from 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5. He tells us that the son of perdition opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Is it possible that Paul is referring to a time when Satan takes control of praise in the temple of God and attains his goal of receiving worship from God's people? Some assure us that the temple here is referring to a Jewish temple that will be rebuilt in the last days. However, there are some very serious problems with that interpretation. The first problem is found in the very next thing that Paul tells the Thessalonians, as seen in the passage that I included at the beginning of this chapter. He writes, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Paul is writing to Gentiles, 
and the only thing recorded in the Bible that Paul ever taught the Gentiles regarding the temple is that they, being the church, were the temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 It is inconceivable that the Gentile church of Paul's day would interpret this passage as many do today, believing that it was referring to a temple that would be built 2,000 years later. It is also inconceivable that Paul taught them about a rebuilt Jewish temple. How could he have possibly been talking about a temple of stone and wood that would be rebuilt by the Jewish people 2,000 years later in a place that was far from their thoughts and over 900 miles away? And the existing temple had not yet been destroyed when Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, and Paul wrote his epistles to the Thessalonians almost 20 years before that year. Furthermore, Paul never emphasized the importance of Judaism to the Gentiles. He did just the opposite. Another major problem with the popular interpretation is that Paul calls it the temple of God. How could Paul believe that the Holy Spirit would call a building that the Jewish people would build with the help of the Antichrist the temple of God? This problem is compounded even more in light of the popular belief that the Jewish people will rebuild a temple before they turn to their Messiah. In other words, while they are still in rebellion against God. Are we to assume that God would recognize their work and the work of the Antichrist as His temple? If we reject private interpretations and base our understanding on the interpretations that the Bible itself gives us, then it is clear that the following is a summary of what Paul was saying. 1. Before the coming of the Lord, God's people will leave the true path as they commit apostasy. 2. Satan will take control of praise in the last days, and in that way he will enter into the church and be worshipped, which is something he has longed for. Remember, according to Amos, leaders in the church will cause Satan's presence to draw near through their music, among other things. Tragically, many innocent Christians have been led astray by ambitious and false leaders who lead them into worship that is not acceptable to the true God. This is exactly what happened in the days of Elijah. The prophets of Baal had led God's people astray. Elijah then restored the true altar and showed Israel what the acceptable sacrifices of the Lord were. If this is not precisely what we need in our day, then why would Jesus have told his disciples, Elias, Elijah, truly shall first come and restore all things? Matthew 17, 11. They realized at that moment that John the Baptist was a fulfillment of Elijah. However, without a doubt, Jesus was talking about a future manifestation of the spirit and power of Elijah in the last days, because John the Baptist was already dead at that time. What will Elijah restore? Among other things that he might possibly restore, he will surely do again what he knows best. He will restore true worship among God's people who have been led astray by Satan and his leaders. We urgently need Elijah to come and restore the Lord's altar and acceptable sacrifices because we have fallen into the trap of the son of perdition, which is Satan controlling praise in the church. If the church has not fallen into false worship, then why would Elijah need to come and bring restoration? That was the problem with God's people then, 
and it is the problem with God's people today. One other problem exists with the idea that the Jews will build a temple. Presently, 70% of the population of Israel are secular Jews, and they do not want a temple. They have no faith, and a temple would be an embarrassment to them. The Orthodox Jews do not want a temple to be built by men for two reasons. One is that they believe what their Bible tells them, that the Messiah will build the temple. Zechariah 6.12 declares, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. From other scriptures, we know that the branch is the Messiah. The other reason that the Orthodox Jews do not want a temple to be built by men is that they are paranoid about anyone stepping on the place where the Holy of Holies was located in the Temple of Solomon. No one knows exactly where it was, and for them, it is still a very holy place on which no man should walk. Some might ask me if I am not familiar with the fact that there are Jews who are already building the furniture for the temple and preparing the priesthood. Yes, my wife and I lived in Israel for almost two years, and we became aware of the Jews who are involved in that project. Their finances come from evangelical Christians from the U.S. who told them that their Messiah and ours cannot come until the temple is rebuilt. Even so, what they are doing is not recognized nor accepted by the vast majority of the Orthodox community, and most are very much against it. Also, when millions of dollars were available, it was not difficult for the evangelicals to find many Jews who would cooperate with the project. Let's examine our ways. Examining ourselves is a biblical measure that we should take. Paul exhorts us to examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 King David prayed, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. Psalms 26, 2. In the final judgment, God will examine every person who has ever lived. However, if we examine ourselves and correct our ways in this present life, we will be approved in His presence in the end. We will then hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Matthew 25, 21. As leaders, we urgently need to examine ourselves. If a leader is filled with ambition and wants to have success in his ministry, then he will likely be convinced to do several things. He will see how others have built megachurches and therefore choose to include the hottest drummer and hottest guitarist in order to have success. As the Bible and history reveal, it is always much easier to have success by using the ways of the flesh rather than the ways of the Spirit. From Genesis and throughout the Bible, we learn that the way of the flesh has success before the way of the Spirit. Ishmael had twelve sons, and Isaac had only two, Jacob and Esau. Esau had kings long before Jacob's descendants had kings. Jeremiah ministered for over forty years, and his main disciple, Baruch, sought for great things for himself. Jeremiah 45, 5. Jesus ministered for three and a half years under the greatest anointing of God's Spirit that any man has ever had. Yet at the end of his ministry, all his disciples forsook him, and after the cross, 
there were only 120 members in his church. But what is most important is how we end and not how barren we might be in our beginning. As a member of a church, if you are not sure about which God is visiting your church, then consider the fruit that has been produced during the last five or ten years. How many divorces have there been? How much adultery has there been among the married people and fornication among the youth? How much drug addiction and alcoholism exist that people cannot get the victory over? How much pornography is being watched? How many members backslide and stop attending church? How much division and gossip are there among those who attend? Where a holy God visits His people, holiness is a fragrance that He leaves behind. Consider this sobering thought. African tribes have used drums for centuries to bring in the presence of their gods, who are demons. If Olatunji, the foremost drummer of Africa, used his drums to offer sacrifices to his pagan deities, then why do we think that his rhythms do not do the same when they are played in our churches? Most surely, they will cause the seat of Satan to draw near. May the Lord give us discernment, and also a heart that longs for his presence and touch. May the Lord deliver us from seeking the carnal and emotional thrill of being entertained in church by the hottest drummer and hottest guitarist and their rock band. Let's not allow the anointed cherub to continue to deceive us as he deceived one-third of the angels in heaven. If this is happening in your life, you are at a very real risk of living eternally with those fallen angels. It is extremely critical that we all escape the deception of Satan. Our eternal destiny depends on it. A Very Great and Sad Deception Many church leaders and many Christians place great importance on the music that they sing in their churches and how they sing it. Then, after they spend a short time in their church services each week, they spend a good part of the rest of their week listening to the music of the world. They see no problem in filling their spirits with that music, just as long as the music they sing for a few minutes each week in their churches is acceptable to God. Since we know that Satan is called the God of this world in the Bible, and since he is also called the Prince of the Power of the Air, it is clear that he controls almost everything that comes over the airwaves. For example, he decides what music will be heard on the radio and what will become popular. He decides what television programs will have success. His most ardent followers will become famous, and their music and acting will be promoted by his minions. He will almost certainly use people who are possessed with demons to sing and play his music because it brings the influence of demons upon the hearers. Undoubtedly, he will make sure that the music the world listens to is music that brings his presence and influence into people's lives and not God's presence and influence. Some might conclude that this is hard to believe, but consider a simple fact. A man named Babatunde Olatunji came to the United States from Africa and decided to record his music that was dedicated to the pagan gods of his forefathers, according to his own declaration. To the surprise of millions, because of the rhythm of his drums, his music transformed the way the secular musicians of the world played and sang their music, and the rhythm of his drums has found its way into a multitude of churches today. 
he was proclaimed a musical genius by the greatest musicians in the last half of the 20th century. These are undeniable facts. His rhythm transformed the music of the world and the churches. Who decided that Olatunji's music that was dedicated to Satan would have such an enormous impact on the world's music in the last half of the 20th century? It certainly was not our God. Any honest heart must conclude that the God of this world promoted his music, his rhythm, and his influence on most other musicians, including those who play rock, country, jazz, rap, and other classes of music. After all, his music is designed specifically to please the satanic gods of his forefathers. What is enormously tragic is that many Christians expose themselves to satanic music and its influence on an almost continual basis. Of course, they see no problem in doing so as long as the music they sing for a few minutes each week in their church is holy. What a sad deception! This is nothing more than ritual and religion. Godly music is not part of their lives. It is only an exercise in religion once or twice a week. Sadder still is that that rhythm and influence are now filling many churches. Are you allowing Satan to be in your temple or to influence your life with his music, including by means of the church you attend?